Hello and welcome to Farmerama. This month we explore radical roots and cider apples with a farming couple in Oregon. We hear about a different type of investment, the slow money movement. We talk to CSAs in Northern Ireland and we end with a call for allyship in the kitchen from a passionate chef. Kim Hamblin and Dan Rinke live down a little track in rural Oregon, where they have a beautiful experimental farm, Rochambeau Art Farm. The duo have a deep understanding of what it means to be regenerative farmers and are crafting a farming landscape that's focused on resilience. They have a cider and wine label called Art and Science, which is currently made from wild foraged apples and fruits, but they've started planting apple trees from seedlings on their 40 acres as well as many other trees. Here's Dan and Kim talking to us through seedlings, roots, and resilience. Hi, I'm Kim Hamblin, and I am co-owner with uh, Dan Rinke of Art and Science, um, cider and wine. Uh, we have a farm, about 50 acres, and it's kind of a mixed-use farm. So we do a music fest annually, so I like to have a lot of fun doing different things. Hi, I'm Dan Rinke, and I am the other co-owner of Rochambeau Art Farm. We are in, or just between Sheridan and Wilmina, Oregon, in our rootstock orchard. It's about a four and a half acre orchard. Uh, we have 70 different apple varieties, a little bit over Maybe. 20 different pear varieties, and uh, just over a dozen quince varieties. And in between each of those uh, varieties, we planted a non-malice, non-Cydonia, non-Pyrus species. Uh, and that could be anything from uh, black locust to uh, honey locust to ash, uh, an alder, maple, willow, uh, willow elderberry, uh, hazelnuts, um, just a, a, a very vast, diverse selection of plants. As far as the potential negative aspects of this would be, harvesting is going to be a, a pain in the butt. There's a lot <laughs> of different varieties and a lot of different things going on out there. It's not as easy as a regular monoculture uh, cropping situation like the rest of the, the country does, but you know, as, as far as, as I see it, it I think it's going to create more resilient plants and uh, more interconnectedness within the plant, com plant and microbiological communities, creating more resilient um, and potentially healthier plants. It, it should um, create a more um, expansive um, hyphal network between plants and allow, allow the, the different plants to potentially pass nutrients and water and hormones between from plant to plant, which could help with with just the overall health of the plant and and also their disease and, and insect resistances. One of the main things that I'm looking at is creating a um, very healthy microbial soil microbial food web uh, and a vast system of mycelium. And within the mycelium and the mycorrhizae that grow in the soil and on the plants, there are spe specific species that are uh, have multiple have two associations with mycorrhizae. The two different mycorrhizae. There's the endomycorrhizae and the ectomycorrhizae, 
And species like elderberry and willow have um, both associations to both mycorrhizae. So I think it's really important to have these hub-like species out there to bridge bridge the the, the gaps between the two different types of mycorrhizae. <laughs> so the seedling orchard, um, we just planted this this last fall, so in 2019, 2018, correct me, um, and it's about 10 acres, and the grid, it's like 60 by 60 spacing on the apples. It's mostly apples, a little bit of pears. Um, the reason we did it um, was because we wanted to have more resilient trees. Um, seedling trees tend to taproot down, so most of them are apples, um, and they, they form a natural tap. So you plant the seed, and it just keeps going. Dan, would you like to talk about the radical? The primary radical of the, of the seedling? So as a, a seed germinates, it creates one primary primary radical which then becomes the taproot and that uh, goes straight down and becomes the main uh, root of the tree. The difference is, is that uh, normally apple trees are grown on rootstocks and the rootstocks uh, come from a stick cutting and so then all the roots comes from the periphery of the edge of the stick and there's no one main radical. One of those roots may become a little bit more dominant than the others, but it's not one single root. So there was a seedling over um, by the front porch. We used to do all our processing um, on the patio, kind of illegally. And, and so there was, you know, some of the mash would just wash off when we washed the patio. And so some seeds just planted themselves. And most of the time we just dug them up or they you know, wither away after some neglect. But this one tree just, like, would not die. And I kept running it over with a hose, like, back and forth. It was, like, right in the middle, like, a corner between two patios. So it was, like, in this really weird spot. And it just kept living. And and I just let it go because I was like, well, you want to you wanna live. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let it go. So I just dug it up, and it was probably about four feet tall. Um, and I dug as far as I could, and then I just snapped off the, the tap. But the, it was it was damn near the size of the tree and I think it probably was if I kept going um but it really had like one main tap and then some secondary ones coming off so it's really interesting to see how how that one looked versus like some of my potted ones so I also have a little nursery where we potted up some some of the compost pile some of the seedlings just popped up in the compost so I I dug them up and put them in put them in a pot and kept them and, uh, and then we had some rootstock ones that we had grafted. And so I looked at those two side by side. I opened them up and shook out the roots and just to see what the differences were. And it was really interesting because the, the seedling ones, just even though some of them were only a year old, had tapped through, through the, um, the pot and went in through the, the, the cloth underneath and down into the ground. Like they really wanted to get in the damn ground. So it's like, all right, you, you want to live. I, I appreciate that resiliency. So that's kind of what we want for for future cider production and future climate change and all the good stuff. Uh, climate change forecast has shown that the Pacific Northwest is just gonna get hotter and drier. And currently we don't have uh, water rights. And so we don't really have the ability to irrigate our crop and this will help um, circum that and get, get over that, that problem um, by just having a deeper taproot and more resilient trees that can live through droughts. The other thing I have to say about um, propagating an orchard by seed is we're also helping um, 
change the the genetic makeup and the diversity of the plants by by allowing some um, genetic um, changes the way apples and grapes and most of our agricultural perennial crops are grown nowadays is that they're taken from clonal selection so there's there's no way for evolution to happen um, where if you're taking it from seed you're allowing more evolution or the chance of evolution to happen and possibly overcoming some of the disease issues that we deal with in modern farming. And then also on, on that same note is, is making a true American species of apple, because right now most of the cider industry is copying the English or the French. So they're, they're importing these same varieties that they grow in other countries across the world and like planting them in America and like, oh, we make cider now, you know, instead of like, we actually have American cider varieties and it's, it's endless how many we can have. So it's actually kind of, kind of fun to be part of that movement too of like, this is going to be future cider in 10 years. I think the, the one easy thing is to keep in mind that with diversity comes resilience. I'd never really considered, um, I don't know why, but the idea that clones were sort of evading evolutionary, um, or evading evolution and not allowing seeds or seed li or lines of genetics to evolve. And I think that actually that, you know, when Dan and Kim pointed that out to me, it really made me think hard about the importance of what they're doing in terms of, you know, planting seedlings. Okay, it, it may not be as quick and easy to get those trees to start, um, but actually if we just keep using clones in all of our, and, and specific rootstocks in all of our trees that we're planting, that is actually setting us up for potential large-scale failure because everything's got the same makeup. So it's the opposite of diversity, and I, I, yeah. So it was really interesting, they pointed that out. Um, and I'd love to hear about more people who are working in that way. Woody Tash is the most bright-eyed, socially and environmentally responsible financier we've ever met. He worked for over 30 years in finance, managing other people's money. But 10 years ago, he took a radical step and started the slow money movement. Now, if you look at the numbers, slow money walks a fine line between philanthropy and investment. But the whole point of slow money is that the return on an investment is the regeneration of the soil and ultimately the health of the local community and planet. That is what people are investing in. Financially, they want to have their loan paid back, if possible, although that always, doesn't always happen. But the gain or the return is regenerated soils and healthy community. This is pretty radical and it can take some time to get your head around. This is not about numbers, doing these numbers versus doing those numbers. This is about reaffirming the primacy of words over the claims on our attention made by numbers. Reaffirming the primacy of relationships over the claims of transactions. Reaffirming the primacy of nutrition over the claims of cheap calories. Reaffirming the primacy of places over the claims of markets 
reaffirming the primacy of generations and seasons over the claims of milliseconds and algorithms, reaffirming the primacy of putting back in over the claims of taking out. What is slow money? Slow money is it's a shared vision of the importance of, and I'll say several things nested together, thinking very long-term, being patient. That's what the patience leads to the idea of slow. Thinking more about um, creating, uh, preserving and restoring soil fertility than about extracting financial returns. But all of those things, the conversation about all those things is, is something that's turned into uh, the slow money movement. And then from that conversation, a network of networks, if you will, a bunch of small local groups have sprouted up mostly in the US, few in Canada, a little bit in France, a tiny bit now in Australia, where um, groups of people who, sh who have been participating in this conversation, you could call it sharing a vision, you could call it participating in an active conversation, trying to help one another move in a radical new direction. Those conversations and that network has led to the flow of $70 million into almost 700 uh, small food enterprises, everything from uh, individual organic farms to food processing, distribution, restaurants, slaughterhouses, cheesemakers, seed companies, anything that is helping get uh, local organic produce from the producer into the local market. So it's very local, um, small dots, groups of people collaborating together actively to help one another do that. From a financial standpoint, a little bit you could say that slow money is staking out territory between investing and philanthropy. So the, the first 0% loan that our new group in Boulder gave was to um, a farm and restaurant in Boulder where the farm family has dedicated themselves to growing as much as possible that they serve in the restaurant from their own farm. And they were farming 200 acres and they just leased another 200 acres and they, didn't ha they had no walk-in cooler on the second farm. They only had the cooler in the restaurant. And so we lent them $12,000 so they could have a walk-in cooler on the second farm. So very, you know, fairly straightforward, I guess you'd say. Um, there are lots of other examples that are on slowmoney.org. I mean, there are hundreds of things like lending $5,000 for a hoop house or a few thousand dollars for drip irrigation line and things like that. You know, gradually moving up to like buying a used tractor or a refrigerated truck or things like that. A very smart person in a recent public conversation said, talked about investing yourself versus investing money. And that's a big part of it. It's, it's what does it mean to invest? If investing means just giving your money to some stranger so they can grow the money arithmetically, that's one kind of investing. If investing means taking time and energy and committing yourself to something because it, it's a cause you believe in, that's a different kind of investing. The consumer part is obvious. That's slow food and a whole bunch of other people who are mobilizing consumers to intentionally drive their consumer dollars. So we're kind of coming up fast, not fast, coming up slowly um, with the investor part, saying we've got to bring our investor dollars there. I'm not going to say it's more fundamental, but it's as fundamentally important. Because if we buy all of our food from a CSA or a farmer's market, but our money's invested in the industrial system, we're certainly compromising deeply that which we're trying to do. From my experience in slow money to date, I am convinced there are many millions of people, how many, it's hard to say, but many millions of people who really want something like this to happen. They want to reconnect. They want to bring their money back down to earth. They want to fully value things in the earth and in their community. And it's, it's hard at the beginning. I mean, we're just at the beginning. It's hard. But I think this is a generational shift. In the, so we all just have to keep at it. If you want to know more about this form of investment and the people who support and benefit from it, 
we'll be releasing a full-length interview with Woody as a short later this week. So check our feed for that. We're keen to support slow money efforts. So is there anyone out there who wants to start up a slow money group where you are? Let us know and we can put you in touch with Woody and the team. Now we're back to Jubilee Farm where Johnny is reporting from their recent CSA Ambassadors event with the UK and Ireland CSA Networks. We're here at Jubilee Farm this month hosting an event called Across Borders, which is organised by the CSA UK Network and the CSA Network of Ireland, a joint event looking at the potential of the community-supported agriculture model for farming in Northern Ireland. I'm joined by Maressa from the UK Network and Roisin from the Ireland Network. And together we're going to think a little bit about the potential of CSA for agriculture here. So, Marissa, why the CSA model for farming and, and for food in Northern Ireland? So, we wanted to do this event because we obviously cover the whole of the UK and thus far um, CSA hasn't developed as much in Northern Ireland as it has in other areas. So, we have quite a lot of CSAs in Wales. They're starting to grow in Scotland. We've had quite a few in England for a while, so um, it's a model we want to bring to Northern Ireland. Uh, we're starting to get a lot of inquiries from Northern Ireland. Um, the model is basically um, where the consumers share the risks and rewards of farming with the producer. So for small-scale farmers, it's a way for farming to be more viable because they have a um, a customer base, a reliable customer base, and for consumers, the benefits are getting fresh local produce, learning about farming and sustainability, and also the benefits of, you know, social benefits of being part of a community, volunteering, going down to the farm. So um, we think that's beneficial for farms here as well as everywhere else in the UK. As far as we know, Jubilee Farm is the first community-supported agriculture scheme in Northern Ireland, though, as you mentioned, Marissa, we're hoping that there will be lots more. And Northern Ireland obviously has a, a troubled history, uh, and yet we're here today to have the message that CSAs work across borders. So Roisin, particularly at this time with lots of political and economic turbulence and events, particularly difficult for Northern Ireland, caught in the middle, and for food and farming too, why is it so important to have a CSA cross-border event at this time? I told myself this morning I wouldn't use the word Brexit today. So, <laughs> um, CSA Beyond Borders is not just about beyond the border, you know, whether hard or soft or whatever it is on the island of Ireland, but but across the world. And this, Marisa and I met in Thessaloniki at a Community Supported Agriculture International event organised by Urgency, and it was there that we plotted the idea to have this event. And um, my mother last week went to a CSA in Germany, next to where my brother lives in Germany, and the welcome that she received there and the on-the-ground effort to provide food, to live in a community where people have real relationships based on, on trust, on, on um, resilience, and that kind of thing and we experienced it last night staying with Jenny and her hospitality and meeting you this morning and we, we know it from other 
CSAs that we've visited, be it in Ireland, be it in the UK, be it in Scotland, it doesn't matter what the names of the places are, the people mm. are always the same. So, yeah. Let's hope that Jubilee Farm is only the first of many CSAs in Northern Ireland. And, uh, good luck. Thank you. You're off to a great start. Thanks to Rebel Kitchen for supporting this episode. Rebel Kitchen are a member of 1% for the Planet. This means they donate 1% of their sales, not just the profits, to partners contributing to the planet. It's through this commitment that they're helping to support us to continue to share knowledge in the farming community and spread the word to many more farmers and growers. Brenda Ruiz is a chef and food educator from Sacramento, California. She spoke to us last autumn at Terra Madre in Turin, where she represented Slow Food USA, and she took her son, Alex, along with her. We were struck by her dedication to allyship and collaboration, and her words really hit home about the importance of speaking out and looking out for others in our working environment. She reminds us that good restaurants and farms are about food sourced with integrity, and that goes hand in hand with treating people with integrity. Who are you an ally for? And who are your allies? Can you build up more of a culture of allyship where you work? My name is Brenda Ruiz. I am a chef in Sacramento, California. I uh, do cooking and nutrition education with K through 12 youth. Um, and paired with school district programs and after school district programs and that was after being in a professional kitchen different restaurants in um, Sacramento for over 20 years um, and when my son was born I knew I needed to consider transitioning that skill set to uh, to a schedule that was more in line with um, what was going to be soon his school schedule Terra Madre has been an amazing experience so far and I'm blessed to be able to share it this time around with my nine-year-old son Alex. When Terra Madre um, was being planned and scheduled, um, he expressed an interest in continuing to attend uh, the, these global gatherings and so it's just cool to keep it going and, and to share this with him. The panel that we attended today was so excellent and, and my question to the panelists was really around the importance of allyships and having allies and um, not only being a good ally to other colleagues, but also being good at receiving and asking help. I think one of the panelists answered the question as an exchange of skills. So it's not really asking for help and receiving help or working together on something um, because maybe the object is heavy to lift or... Uh, there's a, as women are traditional, uh, bear the roles of raising family, might need to uh, leave a shift early or have an extra shift pickup. That, you know, uh, so, uh, if we have ways of supporting allyships that 
that creates a healthier restaurant structure. And so I've been really lucky to work in places where those allyships were um, intentional and sometimes even nuanced, but it was always came from the leadership. Um, and whenever I've had times when I didn't feel supported, it was when allyships were not um, something that was part of the culture of that kitchen. So, and I guess the point is that until we have equity, uh, not just equality, but until we have equity for women in the workplace, that we, uh, these types of uh, collaborative and allyship approach, um, I think is, is really helpful for women to be able to succeed in their careers. And I've been blessed to, to enjoy um, colleagues that have provided me that support and allyship where I didn't feel like I was being, you know, coddled or helped out for being weak. It was really collaborative. Um, and, you know, I think that can translate to other professions as well. Um, as we've seen in the news of the Me Too movement of the last few years, uh, that it's not just enough to march a couple of times a year, but they're everyday examples of being allies um, with each other, women to women, or um, you know, in between men and women, or men to men. You know, if someone is uh, being um, unkind or uh, or not being very supportive of a colleague that's female. Um, that uh, the other colleagues step out and say, come on now, that was not cool, man. That's not cool. I'm not going to let that happen again. You know, so I, I think, uh, it, you know, I, I may am using that word allyship or allies, but, you know, it is part of a, a culture of being, um, a, approaching getting through the nightly service as a collaboration. Um, and, you know, not this like each to himself, because sometimes you do feel, it's a very much like a, a battle that's about to happen. So you get ready, you know, battle station ready because, you know, it's almost 530. So you know that we're going to be very busy, but that we always keep in mind that it's a collaboration. We all have the common goal um, can help just that little shift can help um, a little bit. One thing that I do a lot um, and received a lot um, in the kitchen was I'm I'm a Spanish speaker. I'm a native Spanish speaker and in a lot of restaurants in the United States, the prep crew, the, 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 the chefs that prepare the food for the fancy chefs that cook the line um, are Spanish speakers. So I was often asked to play a, a role, a translating role, um, either between management or between colleagues. I felt I could be a good ally to my Spanish speaking colleagues and and as well as um, on occasion also be a good advocate if there was something that was being discussed that was a sensitive nature. I could help my um, Hispanic uh, or Latino colleague in, in, their, in their conversation with the management or another colleague. Like, no, we've got to say it this way because this is the way we're going to get through this conversation, right? So. Um, and there's many examples of, of that, uh, of that type. Um, so yeah, I felt, uh, it was, it was a responsibility sometimes, um, to bear that, but, uh, it's something I did with, a, I do, uh, and did with a lot of pride and, um, 
And so, yeah, I'd like to see, you know, restaurants really be intentional about promoting allies, allyship, and and when when folks step out of their way to be helpful, um, that that should be recognized as something good and not like a sign of weakness. I recognize that the small farming community and the chef community, we have a lot in common, but oftentimes we're on different schedules. So you guys are waking up when we're just getting to bed, and um, somehow we've managed to make that work all these years, so um, keep up the good work. Farmerama is made by Katie Revel, Joe Barrett, and myself, Abby Rose. This week, editing is by Susie McCarthy and Louis Hudson. Thanks to Johnny for sending in the story about CSAs. The Farmerama theme music is by Owen Barrett. Thanks as ever to our community team, Annie Landless, Eliza Jenkins, and Olivia Oldham. Toodaloo!